Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Okay, a warning. This episode contains discussion about incest, bestiality, S&M, prostitution, necrophilia, and other adult themes. Now, I know a whole bunch of people are going to go, great, I want to listen to this one. But if you're of a sensitive mind, regard this as an over-18 trigger warning. But before we get into all that, I wanted to say thanks to some recent correspondents. James, who's written twice, suggesting John C. Lilly and Stuart Brand for episodes. Absolutely terrific. Kathy put me in touch with Nancy of the Shrub Family Commune. Definitely going to do a show with Nancy. Thanks, Kath. Tony suggested the Source Family and Father Your. We didn't cover that in our Music of Cults episode, and you're absolutely right. That's definitely worth further excavation, Tony. Thank you. Adam and Jenny for their thoughts on the incredible String Band episodes. And of course, to Ronnie Lambert, who always sends me amazing stuff films, music, top tips and even a t-shirt. Thanks, Ronnie. Keep it coming. We love it. You can uh, get us at bureauoflostculture at gmail.com with your thoughts and suggestions. And if you go to bureauoflostculture.com, you can sign up for our bulletin and hear about various upcoming events. Now, if you're listening to this in early 2024, and particularly if you're in London or can be in London, I will be speaking on dancing as counterculture in the Soviet Union at the Horse Hospital as part of an evening around Philip Alterman's amazing book, The Stasi Poetry Circle, a record of the bizarre attempt by the East German GDR's secret service to win the Cold War with poetry. Yes, poetry. Uh, and it's in a whole evening dedicated to the way that rhythms got up the nose of the authorities, often with disastrous consequences for poets, dancers and artists. And speaking of poetry, in March we've got a whole month of things dedicated to Allen Ginsberg. More on that in the bulletin and next time. But for now, let's get back to today. Julie Peekman is an historian in 18th century culture. She's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and honorary fellow at Birkbeck College, University of London. She's a frequent contributor to newspapers, popular magazines and academic journals. She's worked on television documentaries for the BBC, Channel 4 and the Biography Channel. Well, if that doesn't sound very countercultural, perhaps I should mention that her subject, her subject, is sexuality. Of all eras, pornography, gender and, for the purposes of today's, discussion perversion now that word perverse it literally means to turn away from and it's been defined as showing a deliberate and obstinate desire to behave in a way that's unreasonable or unacceptable or contrary to the accepted or expected standards well sounds a bit like counterculture to me and most of julie's books have a certain countercultural theme to them, let's say that. Sexual Perversions, 1670 to 1890. Whore Biographies, 1700 to 1825. Mighty Lewd Books, The Development of Pornography in 18th Century England. That's just a few of them. But we're mainly going to be discussing her latest book, The Pleasures All Mine, A History of Perversion. It's got many affecting stories of how rather benign sexual differences have in the past led to what we would now perceive as unjust and brutal persecutions. Julie's conviction is that the very word perversion and concept of perversion has reached its expiry date. It has at different times included masturbation, male and female homosexuality, cross-dressing, bestiality, sadomasochism, necrophilia, incest, exhibitionism, voyeurism, paedophilia, fetishism, even straight-up vanilla heterosexual sex in certain circumstances. We're going to be going into as much of that as we can in an hour, because she's here with me right now. Hello, Julie. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you very much for inviting me. Your book, History of Perverse Sex, The Pleasures All Mine, it's quite a work. And you were just saying to me then, it was 15, 20 years of research? 
Yeah, I mean, on and off. Um, as I say, I, I have different projects um, going parallel at the same time, mainly because you pick bits up of things as you go along in life. I travel a lot, so I, I used to find lots of stuff in strange libraries, like Fiji Library and, you know, all, sort, all over the world wherever I've been, and the Cook Islands, tiny little islands like that, where you find something <laughs> about phallic stuff. And then I just collect it all. I then have to take out, like, a, a couple of years just to concentrate mm. on pulling all this stuff together. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, I, I work a lot at the British Library, yeah. which is... Um, the best library in the world probably we're going to come back to talk more about pleasures all mine but i just wanted to read out some of your other works sexual perversions 1870 to 1890 whore biographies 1700s to 1825 mighty lewd books the development of pornography in 18th century england biography of emma hamilton sex trend in the female body there's a theme going there i'd say <laughs> sure <yeah>. is <laughs> julia so my first question is why why or how did I get into it in the well, first both, place? Yeah, probably, yeah I, suppose, yeah. yeah. I started off doing um, uh, a degree at Manchester, and what I was interested in is is the fact that there was no women's voices, and they were totally hidden from history. It was all either kings or men in politics, uh, which I'm sure you got at school as well. Men in tights, yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I thought the only the only book that was available then was Sheila Rowbottom's Hidden from History. Uh, and I thought, well, I can, I've got to do something about this. And I'd worked in the cotton industry and started looking at women who, who worked in the cotton industry. And the, uh, it was very difficult because there's no pointers for um, female historians to look where to look for, for, for these women. And I found them in the parliamentary records and there'd been um, uh, an inquiry into women in the cotton industry. And there was all these women who'd been interviewed. Obviously, it was through a third party, the writings were, but it was some of at least the best and closest so I could get to oral history. Um, from then on, I got in, involved in um, looking at um, Victorian prostitution and I eventually did an MA on gender history and I realised that um, where there was a, a real big dearth was the 18th century um, and it was um, particularly on not just women but on minorities and I was always one for sort of um, hurrahing for the underdog so I wanted to delve deeper into homosexuality, lesbianism and all the areas where for centuries people hadn't had a voice. We're going to come back to the pleasures all mine but sexual perversions 1870 to 1890 you said that's a it attempts to open a debate to begin an exploration into the history of many sexual activities considered outside the realm of normal behaviour. Well, that was actually a collection that I mm. did. So it was different scholars involved in looking at different types of um, um, sexuality in history. And there was very little being done when I kicked off mm. in this um, about the history of sexuality mm. at all. 20, 30 years ago. It was just starting off around about the 1980s, I think. And that was in America. In the 1990s, there's still very little being done in Britain. Necrophilia, paedophilia, cross-dressing, religious perversion, foot fetish and rape. I mean, it's quite a menu there, isn't it? I actually wanted to look at all of those things, but also about pornography, because what pornography says as a counterculture um, indicates how they're subverting what's actually um, the status quo. So I got very involved when I did my PhD that was probably that really I got hooked on the history of sexuality I'd done um for my dissertation I'd done um, um a history of flagellation I'd found all these pornographic books from the 1770s and I thought what's going on here mm. and that got me um involved in in looking at, at the history and the development of pornography 18th century and hence this mighty lewd books the development of pornography in 18th century England right through examination of more than 500 pieces of British erotica yeah, that was a gas actually sitting <laughs> sitting in the British Library, reading nothing but smut for like five to, years. <laughs> did you have to go in a cubicle, or did they? Well, it's funny. It started off in the um, we were in the old British Library then. Um, you remember that was in um, the, where the British Museum is now mm. with the big dome, and it was a, a lovely place to work. Um, but they used to make you wear little white gloves mm. and you used to have to sit on a head table, uh, presumably with your hands on the table, presumably so you couldn't masturbate reading Is that right? the... Yeah. Well, that, that, was, that was only for the people who were looking at the lewd books, right? At the naughty books, yeah. Ah, you had to put white gloves on. Yeah. Keep your hands in view. And sit at the front table. Yeah. Yeah, so they could oversee you. Makes and it, it was called the private case material. They had a completely separate category of lewd books. 
So you go in there with a long list of books that you wanted to look at, which must have raised some eyebrows, I'm assuming, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I think I got quite a reputation, actually. <laughs> oh, there's, there's that girl again. <laughs> so, yeah, so you uh, came in with your white gloves on, I love it. And then what about whore biographies, 1700 to 1825? Eight meticulously edited volumes of rare text focusing on, focusing on the autobiographies and biographies of courtesans and directories of whores, essays on whoring and erotic poems dedicated to harlots. That was something that um, really interested me as well, that I wanted to look at women um, specifically working in the sex industry. Um, and it was quite difficult to find anything. So I thought, this is what I need to do is go and look. And it's all their, um, if it's not their own voices, at least it's it's their life stories. I started just investigating to see, had anybody written their memoirs? And I found out that Harriet Wilson had mitten, written her, uh, her autobiography. And then on a trip to Ireland, I found the memoirs of a woman called Peg Plunkett, who was an 18th century brothel keeper. I actually eventually ended up writing her biography as well. Um and then on the mission for the, the, the six volumes of Hall Biographies, I, I found all these other stories, courtesans who got famous. And of course, they were, it's like the newspapers today. They had little booklets on all these women to sell to people who were fascinated by them. <laughs> Scandalous stories for the... Yeah. You and who, sort of who, mock disapproval, but in fact, you're enjoying the Yeah, and details. who they were having affairs with and, you know, what, what they were doing each day, whether they'd been involved in some other sorts of scandals, like wearing see-through dresses at, at the Pantheon where there was great entertainments. That was actually all all the books that I came, came across, I actually edited one by one. Um, so it ended up as six volumes. <laughs> but it is a resource yeah. now for other yeah. scholars, you know, that have annotated it all yeah. and written the story about them, you know, about their life stories. So it's a, it's a resource. It's like in terms of social history as well as a picture of the time, you know, not just the actual details of the sexuality in their lives, but actually, you know, the society in which they were moving in. Right. You've also written the biography of Emma Hamilton, a classic tale of an 18th century woman's rise from poverty to fame and riches using nothing but beauty and feminine guile. That's always been the problem, that women haven't had their voices heard. Mm. Emma Hamilton has always fascinated me. Um, most of all, we know about um, William Hamilton, who is a collector, who's a collector of Etruscan vases. Uh, he was his ambassador to the King and Queen of Naples. He managed so near to Pompeii. He got um, obsessed with collecting and looking at all the, um, the the stuff that was then coming out of the digs from Pompeii. And so he got quite famous because his collection of vases was sold to the British Museum. One lot went was completely sunk. Um, just off the Bay of Naples, which is really sad because we've lost all that. So note any divers who can get round there. It might be good to go and have a look. So we've got all that for, about him, but we didn't have really have her story. And she's absolutely incredible woman when you think she came from a really poverty-stricken mm. background. Went all the way to the top, right? Yeah, she fell pregnant, which so many women did then, but managed to get into the, a step on the ladder to the elite as a courtesan to one of the elite men, Charles Greville. And Charles Greville then actually got fed up with her and palmed her off on a supposed holiday to his old uncle, William Hamilton. And she thought, you know, well, this is my lot now. What can you do? Uh, and she made the best of it. She, he, and he bought her things like language and dancing classes and educated her. And, and she wanted all this um, and got very close to the, um, the Queen. She actually formed such a close relationship. She was very influential in um, helping to get Nelson. He did all the ships that he needed to, to fight his battles. These women's stories really do need to mm. be told. Let's circle back to Pleasures All Mine, History of Perverse Sex. It opens with the phrase, one person's perversion is another person's normality. And I'll also make the distinction because you, as you make the distinction in the book between perversion and then perversion with inverted, inverted commas around yeah. it, right? Yeah. So maybe we could, you could tell us about that, what both those things mean to you. Well, first of all, I'm writing about the history of perversion and what people class as perversion now. So a lot of the um, perversions in history are no longer considered perversions anyway. So we look at things like um, oral sex, which is, is what we would consider normal um, and delightful sex, if not obligatory now, <laughs> um, was frowned upon by the church. And it's the church that made most of the original decisions on what was perverted. A constant theme throughout it in, 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 mm. the, in the chapters, and each chapter is devoted to a different area of you know sexual activity, isn't it, right? Which have broadly, you know, at some point been described or still are as per perverse, but... 
it's Christianity that's the big thing, isn't it? Bringing in these kind of ideas about what is perverse and, in fact, what's moral, what's immoral, what's legal, what's mm, illegal. Yeah. Right? It, it, it issues statements, um, mainly from Leviticus, about you shouldn't lie with another man's wife, which we know. But they'd come out with statements about and you mustn't um, wear apparel that's of the opposite sex or you mustn't lie with the same sex. You mustn't sleep with a woman when yeah. she's menstruating. And, and on feast days and on various right. days. And somebody worked out that you could only actually um, legitimately, within religion, sleep with a woman for 90 days of the year well, if you were going to actually keep, you know, keep to the, the church's yeah, he, was, he was not fun. I mean, isn't Leviticus the place where it suggests burning gay men. Obviously, they weren't called gay men then. Right, yeah. um, it was sodomites, right, and yeah. sodom- sodomy actually meant three things then. One was sleeping, um, a man sleeping with a man. One was... Just sleeping with him? Or- well, sodomising him. Right. Um, bottom stuff, really. Or being sodomised. Yeah, it was mainly actually the people who were being sodomised that were actually victimised rather than the sodomite, the, the active partner. Um, Why was that? Penetration itself was a man's thing, so it was manly, whereas um, being the receiver was um, you were making yourself effeminate and nobody could understand why you'd want to do that. Great crime. Yeah. Um, The second bit on the sodomy laws um, was that you can't sodomise a woman either, so you can't have anal sex with a woman and you can't have um, sex with animals. All of those were against the church rhetoric. Here is a sidebar about perversions in the Bible and beyond. According to gotquestions.org, a Christian Bible-focused website, since early days, us human beings have found twisted uses for sex that accomplish neither of God's intended purposes, which are procreation and joining a man and a woman as marriage partners as one flesh. In the Old Testament, the perversions were so widespread apparently that by the time God gave the law to Moses, admonitions against specific perversions had to be listed in detail. A lot of these are in Leviticus, and a lot of them have to do with family relations, blood relations, or relations by marriage, which were forbidden. They often had very brutal punishments recommended. For instance, if a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them should be put to death. They have done what is perverse. Their blood guilt is upon them. But then we hear also, if a man lies with a male as a woman, they have committed an abomination. The two of them shall be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon them. If a man has sexual relationships with an animal, the man shall be put to death and you shall kill the animal. If a woman goes up to any animal to mate with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal and they shall both be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon them. If a man marries his sister, his father's daughter or his mother's daughter and they have intercourse with each other, that is disgraceful. They shall be publicly cut off from the people and the man shall bear the penalty of having had intercourse with his own sister. Elsewhere it is said that you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbour's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. In various other parts of the Bible, we hear other admonitions against various sexual related activities. In Ephesians, it is said that it's not right to tell dirty stories or to have foolish talk or obscene jokes. In Corinthians, we are told to be not deceived fornicators, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And here perhaps we come to the nub of it. Our bodies and what we do with them is not up to us. While many modern Christians, of course, would disavow the above, some of these admonitions and prescriptions seem to have lasted to the present day. Cracked.com, for instance, has a list of historical perverts. 
but listen to what the perversions they're accused of are. H.G. Wells for being promiscuous. Hans Christian Andersen. He perhaps should have been called Hand Christian Andersen because his sin apparently was that he was a masturbator. Edward VII, several affairs with prostitutes or society mistresses. He even had a specially designed sexual chair. Doesn't sound that bad. Erding Schrodinger, as well as his contributions to physics, had a penchant for the physical. He was promiscuous and indulged in a menage a trois. Aviator Charles Lindbergh flew too close to the sun as a family man. He had several secret families. An unbelievable facts list 10 historical figures who were total perverts behind closed doors. Schrodinger, Hans Christian Andersen and Edward VII all appear in there too. But you can add Einstein for promiscuity. Charlie Chaplin, who's described as an early version of Harvey Weinstein, fair enough. Mozart for writing letters with toilet-related humour. In a letter to his cousin Maria on 5th of November 1777, he said, Well, I wish you good night, but first shit in your bed and make it burst. Sleep soundly, my love. Into your mouth your arse you'll shove. Not the sort of lullaby uh, I would like. Percy Granger, brilliant and eccentric composer, apparently had a violent and passionate sex life in which he repeatedly flogged himself, his lovers, and eventually his wife. He also demanded to be flogged by others and documented the instances through photography. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, another philosopher, revealed his need to be spanked to reach sexual arousal and he used to expose his private parts in dark alleys in the hope of getting spanked, that's not on. James Joyce also appears as somebody who was sexually aroused by farting. Who would have thought it? You had an arse full of farts that night, darling, he wrote to his wife Nora in 1908. Big fat fellows, long windy ones, quick little merry cracks, and a lot of tiny little naughty farties. Quite unpleasant in my opinion, but hardly seems the sin. It was homosexuals who were actually mainly persecuted. The first law was the buggery law in the uh, 1533. Quoting Leviticus, was it? That was the, the sort of a king's edict. The Bible had been written a lot earlier, but that it hadn't been instilled in law very firmly. Right, but one has heard certain places in the world where they get fundamentalist end of Christianity and other religions is that those kind of precepts are quoted still. I don't know if this is a, a myth or not, but I, I'm sure until recently oral sex was actually illegal in an American state. Not that anybody's been prosecuted for it for So a while, it's abortion but... now in many states. Right. I mean, God right. forbid that right. we, we put America up as a, a paragon of virtue. We've got straight in there with uh, with anal sex. Um, so we could just back up a little bit, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> so you're writing about the way people have talked and written and depicted perversion. But let's make that distinction that you make between perversion with inverted commas and the word perversion. Well, my I think virtually everything goes or anything goes, except it's a matter of consent. And it's consent to me that is the absolute crux of everything. Because if you don't consent... Or can't consent... Yeah, that's the, the main area for me that's in, of most important. Um, but, of course, there's things like um, uh, paedophilia, children can't consent. Um, and it's a very touchy subject, obviously. Mm. That's And things like um, necrophilia, where obviously a corpse can't consent. Now, I wouldn't have any problem at all if my husband wanted to screw me. <laughs> when I was dead. It's not a perversion if it's a consent. I can't see anything wrong with it. But this is important, isn't it? So a kind of anything goes until you stray into the world of consent, right? So, mm. But should you have actually said at some point that you're happy if your husband has sex <laughs> with your corpse, you, that's fine, right? That's not perversion then for you, mm. is that right? It yeah. would have been seen as perversion, or it would still be seen yeah, as perversion. Yeah, but it's not by, perversion to me. For you, it's not yeah. perversion, right? Yeah. And I think if you look at certain things like um, BDSM, mm. um, think about Operation Spanner case that happened um, some years ago, where uh, the police had found videos of, of 16 gay chaps, not just having sex, but infibulating, um, sticking nails through foreskins mm. and beating each other up. Now, it's all consensual, and there's a whole scandal about it that why should these blokes be persecuted? So they spent four, four million pounds on this, and it even went to European um, High Court. They actually got got uh, penalised for it. Um, some were imprisoned and some got fines. Nowadays, that wouldn't happen. Because that's society attempting to enforce a moral prescription. 
on other right, people. On other yeah, people. Yeah. N- nothing to do with consent, nothing to do with harm. I mean, mm. I don't know whether there's some physical harm involved, but society stepping in and saying this private behaviour can't go on. It's beyond the pale in some way, right? It's a morality infliction mm. by the police, isn't mm. it? And that was what used to happen. It was the mo- morality was instilled by the church, uh, and it was it was they who decided. And then it became a medical issue um, once the religion was sort of decreasing and the belief in religious aspects were decreasing. Um, increasingly, the medical people, such as surgeons and doctors, were, were trying to find what was perverted. And you had people like the sexologists coming forward. Kraft Ebbing, at the end of the 19th century, he was the founder of sexologists and he actually def- made a complete definition of what he considered was sexual per- perversion. And that went through flagellation, bestiality, necrophilia, um, homosexuality, lesbianism, everything you can think of, basically, apart from um, vaginal penetrative sex, which is what what the church had always said. So they define the norm as being heterosexual, vaginal sex, yeah. pr- preferably with somebody that you're married to, I'm assuming. But, um, yeah, yeah for then, the church yeah, anyway. And then, yeah. and then outside that, these sort of ripples, the further it gets from that in some ways is that the more perverse yeah. it gets. The only like, thing that the, the medieval church did allow was that um, oral sex and flagellation and all these peripheries um, that we might indulge in Um, which they considered perversions, were allowed if it ended up in um, penetrative sex between a man and a woman who were married. And that's because the main thing in their mind was you you only had sex to conceive. So foreplay, as it were. Was acceptable if you were trying to conceive. And that was the whole end-all and be-all of of sex. But then after um, Kraft Ebbing, um, we had Havelock Ellis also Mm. built on what Kraft Ebbing had done. Um, another um, sexologist. But these men were very much men of their time that they saw women as very passive beings, um, just like the whole of the Victorian period had. Uh, women had been sort of forced into this submissive role uh, on an inferior role. And if they were assertive, um, particularly in sex, it, it became a problem for the men. I've just written an article actually on... Um, frigidity and impotence. What was interesting to me was that I looked at all these doctors' opinions on frigidity and and impotence from the Victorian period, and they're completely shot through with misogyny. So impotence was not the fault of the man, it was the fault of the woman because she either lacked hygiene or she didn't stimulate the man properly. It was all her fault. Frigidity, of course, was all her fault as well because she wasn't passionate enough, she didn't come forward enough, she didn't do what the man liked. Um, And impotence had nothing to do with the men usually, uh, unless he over-masturbated. That was the other thing. That was one of the causes, because masturbation was a sort of no-no as well then. Yeah, that's always erased ire in certain departments, isn't it? It's interesting you say that about fragility, because we had a programme a while back about women in the counterculture, and uh, Jenny Spies and Jill Drow are here, um, both of whom are kind of countercultural, strong women. Um, But they're talking about the, the... the way that women were treated in the counterculture after the so-called sexual revolution, you know, with the advent of the pill and stuff, is mm. it wasn't that different in a strange way. So then it became like if you didn't want to free love, you know, which basically means sleeping with anybody mm. any time sort of, the word that was used against you was frigid, mm. right? Or you've got hang-ups. Yeah, oh, you were a lesbian. That was also thrown <laughs> at you. Yeah. yeah. I always find it a little bit surprising in a way that whereas many countercultural movements were progressive and positive that in some respects it was just that stayed the same as it was in the 50s and before, you know what I mean? It wasn't really until the women's movement got going in the 70s that things started to to change a bit. Things do take a long time to change, Mm. and I often wonder how far things have actually changed. Mm. Um, uh, The new book that I'm doing, Libertine London, um, I'm looking specifically at the 18th century, looking at women from all different areas of the sex trade from street walkers to courtesans um, looking at adultery rape again and how women have been treated throughout mm. that century and it's again shot through with misogyny looking now how how has that changed i didn't feel like that to be honest when i i was i started on the pill when i was younger i think i must have been a step outside not actually realizing how other women were being treated a lot of the time because i was 
I was quite assertive myself. And I thought, I'm not going to be like that. Well, they were saying that, you know, for them, obviously, that when the female unit was published, it was a, it was a sort of signal moment, you mm. know. And also, they were, they were discussed often in Freudian terms by these guys, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. In terms of their repressed, they were repressed and stuff. And it was just like, no, I don't want to have sex with you. Or I don't want to have sex with a lot of people. They were reclassed as frigid. But I, re- I remember I th- thinking about the female eunuch because mm. I remember when it came out and, and how it did change, you know, lots mm. and lots of people's views. And it was so it was everywhere, which was brilliant because mm. you know for the first time people were talking about the position of women. For me, one of the defining moments, and I, I laugh about it now when I think about it, was when Cosmopolitan, the American Cosmopolitan, actually came to Britain, and the first article w- w- was on um, orgasm, female orgasm and how to get orgasm and of course people hadn't been particularly in the mainstream had not been talking about this at all um so looking back on how things have changed for me that i think the 70s in america the 60s made were really changing everything mm. you know in terms of this book it's, it's divided into chapters and each chapter <clears throat> deals with a certain area and i was just thinking as you point out at least three of these chapters four of them really and now not even really seen as being perverse, aren't they? You know, like masturbation, you've got chapter two, right? You've got the Ganymede to the gays, you know, on homosexual, certainly in this culture anyway, yeah, right? Yeah. Female friendships, little lipstick lesbians. You know, these are things, thankfully, that have been moved out of this description as being perverse. Transvestites and transsexuals mm. is a big political issue mm. at the moment, isn't it? And, and it's not really till we get to six, chapter six, a man's best friend, great mm. title, <laughs> bestiality, seven, the ties that Brian said, and masochism. Probably that's okay now. Uh, eight, loving the dead, necrophilia. That's probably beyond the pale for most people still. Nine is too close for comfort, incest. Ten, child love or paedophilia. And then 11, games people play and 12, body parts. You know, a lot of that stuff now actually has moved out of this kind of description sure. of perversion. thank God. Yeah. yeah, thank God, yeah. right. And the ones that are remain, I was thinking, they do tend to be defined by what you were saying earlier, which is, is that there are areas where there's no consent. Mm. Children, mm. dead mm. people. And animals. And animals. So to you, does that seem like that is quite a lot of progress? I think there's a lot of progress being made. I think there's still a huge problem um, about uh, misogyny um, for trans women and for trans men who we don't hear as much of. They don't s- seem to be as prevalent in, in arguments. When I, I was, anybody could call themselves anything they wanted and dress how they wanted and um, do what they wanted as long as there was consent. This, I have to say, was in a specific um, area where I used to hang out in Manchester, this club down Canal Street. Um, but that was raided all the time. So even then, you know, the, the people would be hauled mm. off. It wasn't drugs there. It was nearly all to do with people with different sexualities. So mm. I'd sort of been introduced to it very early on. And it fascinated me because it was, again, it wasn't all the boring, normal stuff in, in society. And, and I thought, this is something completely different. And why are these people being persecuted? Actually, I must have only been about 15 then, mm. so it makes me realise when, when you're asking me about these things and I'm thinking back, it's actually probably one of the starting points for me thinking. Because in that sense, it is countercultural, isn't it? It's, sure, I mean, There is something definitely. about perversion which is countercultural. It's yeah. against the mainstream culture, right? Mm. And enduring the counterculture, just to sort of speak positively about what we were discussing a little while back, was that it was a time when things opened up. I mean, even, you know, uh, independent press like IT and stuff, they were publishing images and a lot of pornography actually got associated with the counterculture, didn't it? And even in America, you know, the, the, the big the big uh, censorship trials and stuff, mm. you know, they were supported by the counterculture because it was seen as a freedom of speech issue as well, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, as, as, yeah, you yeah. Know. yeah. Uh, and, and those, you know, I look at IT now and stuff and some of it's a bit dodgy, but, um, you know, it was trying to overturn these randomly imposed social norms which often had their roots in religion but were unthinking, right? The whole area of medicines changed to actually develop to um, help people in that way. Although, you know, there's a big argument obviously going on there as well now. What age group people should be allowed to to trans? That, again, is an area of consent, really, and at what age? But, I mean, women were being forced to marry at 12, um, in the medieval sure. period. so There's a few things that really struck me reading this. There was a kind of class issue, wasn't there? Because a lot of the activities that might have been considered perverse, whether they are now or not, would have defend, depended on having private space. Uh, they were also probably dependent on having some leisure time. Might even depend on resources. I'm not talking about, say, sex workers, but I'm talking yeah. about the, you know the people who, in a way, had the 
opportunity yeah. to cultivate their private pleasures, right? In some ways, I can give you an example of both areas on that. Mother Clapp's Molly House, which a lot of people will have heard of, was actually a, a meeting place for, for homosexuals. Um, and um, they had rituals there where they'd marry each other, mock birth ceremonies where they'd give birth to either giant Cheshire cheeses or um, <laughs> they'd have a little wooden doll that they'd pretend to pull out between their legs. I suppose in a, a mockery against against pregnancy and was counterculture. They obviously weren't necessarily against women. They just wanted a private place. Maybe they were counter, being counterculture against marriage as well. That too. Mother Clapp was very popular um, with them, and she supported them. The interesting thing about that is that the when the um, they were raided and they got caught. Most of the men were actually working class and labourers. Oh, right, okay. There were um, blacksmiths and uh, market stall holders and grocers and maybe sort of just above the uh, the labouring classes. They had to obviously be able to afford to go to the, the tavern in the first place because the whole way she made her money was through the, the drinks. But she was pilloried in the stocks when they exposed what had been happening. Which for anybody who doesn't know what that means, that means you were kind of, your head and your arms were Stuck pushed through holes. two holes and you were in prison there and then people pelted you with... Dead cats dead, and... Awful and... Rotten eggs and, and anything they could get hold of. as well, yeah, right. Yeah, um, and it killed a lot of people. Mm. It wasn't just a punishment that you, you always survived. Here is a sidebar courtesy of City of London of Mother Clapp's Molly House. It's believed that there were more gay pubs and clubs in London in the 1720s than in the 1950s, and certainly more than today, with the capital losing 58% of its LGBTQ venues in the past decade. Yet during the 18th century, sodomy was a crime under the Buggery Act of 1533. While not defined exclusively as sex between men, as Julie pointed out, it essentially targeted any sexual behaviour deviating from that between a married man and his wife. Convictions between men for sodomy were by far the most common. Despite being punishable by a fine, imprisonment or even death, private social spaces existed in London where gay men from all classes could meet safely. Establishments called molly houses dominated, ranging from private backrooms in gin shops to three-storey public houses run by male couples. A very well-organised molly subculture existed. Early figures in the church branded men who had relationships with men as moles or sissies, with wider society labelling effeminate men mollycoddles and mollies. Having no other term except the biblical or legal sodomite or bugger, gay men transformed molly into a positive term of self-identification. The infamous Mother Claps was a private residence and a coffee house located in Field Lane near Hoban. And although owned by John Clapp, it was run by his wife Margaret, Mother Clapp. It was very popular Molly House amongst the underground gay community. Mother Clapp cared for her visitors and often let men lodge at her house for years at a time and even provided false testimony to get a man equipped of sodomy. A special room was a feature common in other Molly Houses, sometimes referred to as the marrying room or the chapel and contained a large double bed. Though no ordained minister officiated the nuptials, two men would enter to be married. Reportedly, Clapp's regulars would get up, dance and make curtsies and mimic the voices of women. This apparently was to impersonate the flamboyant speech of sex workers during the period, rather than the typical woman in society, a type of affectation still seen across the drag scene today. The safe space Mother Clapp had created was exposed when police raided one night in February 1726. One officer reported he found near men 50 there, making love to one another as they called it. Clapp was brought to trial for keeping a disorderly house, a euphemism for a brothel. Found guilty, she was sentenced to stand in the pillory at West Smithfield, pay a fine, and was imprisoned for two years. Many Morleys present on the night met a far harsher punishment. Three men, Gabriel Lawrence, William Griffin and Thomas Wright, were tried for sodomy and hanged together at the Tyburn Gallows. And on the other side to that, there was the Veer Street conspiracy, which ha happened later. And that was another raid on another uh, male brothel, um, except involved in that was elite men. And they, of course, got off. And um, the, the working class or trade 
the 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 boys that were get, giving them a bit of rough they were all the ones that got right. um, got put in prison or got fined and so there was a class distinction basically anybody with with that amount of money could get off for most things but i was just wondering whether because it that you know for some of the you know the flagellation that you talked about and these things whether they needed to be in private so that have access to a certain amount of resources because being private in London in the sort of 70s mm. and 18th century was impossible for most people, wasn't it? Yeah, there was actually a flagellation brothel in German Street in London right? Um, of women. Right. Supposedly. W- women flag- being flagellated or... Flag- flagellating each other. Right, OK. And there was um, another brothel on Charlotte Street, which was um, Theresa Berkeley's uh, flagellation brothel. That was flagellating men. And she invented a, a huge contraption, like two ladders stuck together in an A-shape. So you could put the men and strap them onto this contraption so they couldn't move uh, and, and whip them with all sorts of different whipping instruments that they had from birches to horse whips and you could choose choose which 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 whip we wanted. I can feel a walking tour coming on here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. So it's not as simple as you know the wealthy could get up to it and the working class couldn't. But in London in the eighteenth and nineteenth, massive amounts of prostitution, right? Mm. I mean, this area where we are now, right, mm. in Piccadilly, Piccadilly Circus, and and also child prostitution. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, that people like Boswell, as in Doctor Johnson mm. and Boswell, writes in his diaries about, you know, using prostitutes who are obviously 12, 13 years old, mm. you know, and that wasn't seen, probably until Robert Louis Stevenson, actually, wasn't really seen as being an issue, was it? Well, going with prostitutes might be seen as an issue, but as you said, it was the prostitute's fault. It was the sex worker's fault, right? And the fact that it was a child was not seen as significant. It wasn't significant to Boswell. No, the majority of, of prostitutes were probably around between 15 and the, into their early 20s. Many of them were around Covent Garden area and, of course, in the East End as well, Shoreditch and Wapping and around mm. there. There's no stigma for men, obviously, using bro- brothels or picking up street walkers, although there was um, a society called the Reform, the Society of Reformation of Manners. Um, and again, they were mainly from a Christian background who uh, tried to expose men who were using brothels and picking up prostitutes. Um, so there's still that religious element going on. And of course, women who are actually in the in the lower class, so it's say street walkers, um, the lower part of the trade, I don't suppose they'd have wanted to indulge in lots of the sexual perversions we've been talking about. Um, but which, they... which would take time and you know, equipment potentially yeah, and space yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, and you're you, on the street, it's going to be... going to quickie up the back alley yeah, or something. Yeah. And for the price of a pint and a, a mm. pie, you know, it was food they wanted. Obviously different classes of women. It, it was just rife in London. Mm. And, and again, the whole thing about the misogyny, that mm. men didn't get persecuted mm. for this, um, but women were... Any woman who was having sex before marriage basically was called a whore, a slut, mm. and it didn't matter whether you were an actress or a courtesan or mm. a, a, even a mistress, a long-term mistress. Um, you'd still get be called a whore, as Emma Hamilton mm. was. And you could be imprisoned for all sorts of stuff. Ireland in later, later years, you know, young girls were being sort of effectively incarcerated for getting pregnant, right? Yeah, uh, but uh, I mean, even streetwalkers were getting mm. picked up and there was no specific law against picking men up on the street for sex. It was actually under the vagrancy laws, so it's for sort of loitering and hanging about um, that they, they they actually got fined for. Um, but a lot of the um, the police in in certain areas, they got to know the women. They knew that they didn't have much money. They knew they were on the breadline. Um, and you see, there's certain cases where you see the police just saying, "Oh, go, just just don't do it in this area, you know, just go away and 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 don't make it so obvious." Um, when the women were brought before them, and then there was other men from the reforming society that would go out looking for these these women, um, and then. In, with joy, they'd, they'd publicise all the women that they, they'd caught, oh, made them pay should. fines. I mean, it's still a kind of borderline legal area, isn't it? The whole thing around uh, sex work, but it is moving more towards if you're going to prosecute anybody, prosecute the guy rather than the actual sex worker. The problem is, is that any laws against prostitution leaves women very vulnerable. Um, and the fact that, you know, you can't have loads of, of, of women work, working from one place in one, mm. it, it's it's problematic because once you're in groups, you, you women can defend each other and, mm. and, and you, feel, you feel safe. The whole laws around it are problematic, mainly if men are still going 
going to want to uh, find prostitutes and have sex with with prostitutes. There's there's always going to be the supply. The whole attitude of society that's really got mm. to change by um, putting women in a position where they don't necessarily have to go into prostitution if they don't choose to. If they don't choose to. So, so yeah. it comes back to that consent thing again, doesn't it? Mm. Right. Now there is a chapter in your book devoted to incest, and of course that's a sort of odd area when it comes to consent, isn't it? Because you could have brother and sister or brother and brother or sister and sister who consented to have sexual relationships with each other. And, and at the same time, you can see that there is, or there was certainly anyway, a reason for that not to happen for mm. genetic reasons, yeah. right? You know what I mean? There was a sort of harm, delayed harm possibly caused, which you talk about. Um, that's sort of odd one, isn't it? The incest thing when it comes to consent and and you know whether it should be inverted commas allowed. Again, it's their person's choice, though. You'd hope that the people would be responsible enough to know that there's a possibility that there might be genetical disformation further along. Um, but that whole law's changed as well because you didn't used to be able to marry cousins up to the fourth generation. So you can marry cousins now. I didn't know that. I wouldn't marry many of my cousins. <laughs> And then there's the, the 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 whole problem of insemination. How many men have donated sperm to how many women, and the possibility of actually meeting and falling in love with your your brother or your sister? It's increasing every day. It's interesting, of course. Yeah, yeah. I don't see there's a problem mm. with incest as long as people think about the the problems that it's going to bring them. Good. Okay, so that we've got incest, we can put that one aside. <laughs> Lots of the other things you mentioned, exhibitionism, voyeurism, you know, sadomasochism is, you know, that's changed with regard to that, isn't it? I mean, I used to go to the torture garden, which, you know, still feels a bit countercultural, but it certainly did at the time. But mm. I mean, now, not really. I mean, it's a kind of mainstream entertainment. It's on the mainstream menu, you know, in certain Do you, in do you think it's um, the Shades of Grey that changed that? I think it did have a big effect, yeah. It did have, but it, it's partly that. And I think it's partly that, you know, a theme that we've talked about many times here, which is that things start off countercultural. And, and they get mainstream. taken up into the culture, yeah. usually because they usually through fashion mm. or through advertising, mm. film, music. I mean, look at Lily Gaga, you know, you can see that all, all that dress thing came from S&M clubs, didn't it? And, uh, mm. and things you know, become normalised. Things become normalised. Yeah. And of course, that's an important process. It's a good thing, you know, mm. I think that the culture gets refreshed by the counterculture, you know. So a lot of the S&M stuff now, I think, certainly in urban areas, in cities, maybe in the West, you know, is not regarded as anything but a bit of harm. It's, it's fun, is it, really, you know? I mean, even going back to um, probably the 80s, I'm thinking about the news of the world was still reporting these naughty vicars who wanted yeah. to be flagellated, <laughs> yeah. which is interesting because, yeah. of course, the whole flagellation thing came out of right. um, of um, penance right. and flagellation yeah. from the church <laughs> again. Yeah. Yeah. So you can blame the church yeah. for actually instigating that yeah. one. And they did that whole fake expose, of course, of Mosley, you know, when they sort of claimed he was at a sex party dressed up as a nut. Yeah. Lots of stuff has moved into uh, the mainstream, which is a good thing, you know. Also in the book, bestiality and stuff, and there's, there are some funny bits in your book, I have to say. This is a funny bit. In both Switzerland and Sweden, the preference was for cows. The pigs have been common in the new world of puritanical 17th century America. In New England, the aptly named Thomas Hogg was accused of fathering a piglet that resembled him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the whole, the whole of his downfall was that the pig recognised him <laughs> when he came into court. Or turned, turned around. Yeah. <laughs> there is something, of course, on the bestiality front, which maybe it shouldn't be, but it is, of course, comical as well, right? Not if you're a, I imagine if you're an animal, it's mm. far from it. It's always sort of occupied a slightly comical uh, bit of the cultural landscape. Again, it's about consent for me, you know. <laughs> can an animal consent? Well, I mean, you you also go into details about whether it possibly can in some respects, whether mm. animals can take the active role, as it were, right? Yeah, but yeah. in the actual milieu of how we treat animals generally in this society, mm. say with battery farming and all the other stuff that we do, in fact, in fact we're, we, we do an awful lot of worse things to animals without their consent. I'm not that I'm arguing, by the way, in favour of bestiality, but people might get understandably quite upset about, you know, somebody having sex with a piglet like um, Thomas Hogg, mm. but they're quite happy to, you know, let that pig grow up in a box and then eat it for know, Sunday lunch, right? And uh, there's something in your book which I hadn't heard of before, which is these um, sex farms um, where in America and possibly even here where men, I think it's mainly men, um, 
go, go and gather to witness each other having sex with animals. Sounds grim. Sounds absolutely vile. It was strange. Why is it always men? <laughs> I, I was going to ask you that question. I thought you'd be able to answer No, it. no this is the strange thing. Most of the, the, the worst things, including necrophilia, seem to have mm. been men that have been the per- perpetrator. I suppose with necrophilia, there's probably technical reasons as well, isn't there? I'm, I'm imagining it's easier for a man to have sex with a corpse than a woman. But I don't know. I mean, I've not really thought about it in detail. But There's a pornographic, again, comic, 18th century piece where the woman cut off the husband's penis and nailed it to the floor. He was dead, Must I'm have, Yeah. Oh, for that, yeah. <laughs> there is a possibility, but I imagine it's a bit messy and a bit tacky. A friend of mine's actually trying to make a film about it, but you, you, you talk about the actual extraordinary case of Van Kozel as well. Yeah, deeply strange, but in his case, I mean, he was actually in love with this... So this, sad, this because tragedy, Van yeah. Kozel fell in love. He was um, a radiologist in Florida, and he... Uh, fell in love with a, a, a girl called Maria from a Mexican family. She was suffering from TB and that's how he met her because she was going for the x-rays. He paid for a treatment as well because the family were really poor. And as time went in, Arnie sort of fell more and more in love with her and she eventually died. And he built this huge mausoleum for her and he used to go and visit her every day and take flowers and take, bring her shawls and a comb and physical things where um, what what a man would bring his lover maybe mm. um, and in the end he couldn't stand to be without her and he, he, he under the cover of night he took her out from there and took her back home um, and he said she was still in really good condition um, which I presume she'd been in sort of a quite a solid box obviously she started to deteriorate but because he was associated with the medical profession he knew how to actually preserve her and so he'd bring all these potions home um, to, to preserve her, her flesh as far as he possibly could. And when she started to deteriorate, he um, used piano wire to hold a skeleton together and packed um, silk material into her vagina so he could have sex with her. And he got found out because the neighbours could smell all these smells, presumably coming from her body, and, and also the lotions that he was having to use to preserve her. Yet when he was in prison, because he, the court case obviously very public and people weren't as appalled, or at least mm. women weren't as appalled, as, as you might think. There was quite a sympathy think, for him, wasn't there? Yeah. That, well, it wasn't just sympathy. These women thought it was marvellous how he'd loved her so much that he'd cared for mm. her after death. Um, and I think the penetration really didn't matter to them. It was just a sign of his love that he'd mm. cared for her so much that he'd done. He'd gone to these ends to to look after her and to to keep loving her. So it's quite sad, really. But he got visits from all these women in prison. That's not uncommon, though. No, it isn't. You're right. Mm. There's probably a few others like that, but that's more the exception. And the other stories and and accounts of necrophilia that you talk about, they are quite grim. And I suppose. What that comes round to next, talked about Kraft Ebbing and then and Havelock Ellis mm. and then um, later the Kinseys, you know, where these edgy sexual activities become described now as more as psychological disorders, right? They actually enter into that world, don't they? Maybe they're not talked about in religious terms mm. anymore or moral terms, but they're regarded as being... Well, perversion. Perversions, yeah. but of the mind. Yeah. What makes somebody interested in, in having sex with dead bodies? I mean, it is deeply strange isn't it it's just about the perversions in general craft ebbing and um and ellis were interested in making the whole perversions from the religious angle more into a medical problem um, and, and people like magnus hirchfeld who um, did brilliant work in his institute of sex um, research in Berlin. He looked at transvestism and trans uh, transvestites and um, homosexuality and what they were trying to do was make a medical issue rather than a criminal issue. So in a way they were actually trying to help the, stop the persecution, which it didn't of course. His place in Berlin, uh, Hirschfeld's place, was eventually raided um, when Hitler had come to power, you know, when there was all the burning of the books and the smashing of, of research institutes. Luckily he was away on a tour at the time in America, so he um, escaped, but there was a lot of people who were murdered, one committed suicide, the people who were associated with the institute that they work for a lot of these what what we would consider to be just diverse sexual activities yeah became described mental aberrations you know they were like described in terms of me- mental health yeah, perversion yeah. became a kind of a problem of neuropathology yeah. yeah yeah there's a billion different people there's a billion different stories aren't there but you know we don't know what makes somebody interested in the kind of activities that other people consider to be perverse 
Well, a lot, a lot of the medical angle had been on looking at um, your background and your childhood background, particularly people like Freud, who, you know, sent the whole thing um, down to the pits as far as I'm concerned and added to the whole misogyny of, um, of, mm. of women. The DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, of Sexual Disorder, which actually um, right up until this day still define what's supposedly these disorders, paraphilias or fetishisms. I mean, homosexuality was right in there until a decade ago or so. And so they are changing as well. You know, the the actual medical directory has changed in itself as what was called in history perversions is, is no longer seen as perversion. That certain things are being normalised, as you say, quite rightly so. Uh, but God, how it's taken so long. And there's still persecutions of people. Women are still, well, are treated like a minority. There is this issue about history, which, you know, you make the point that we can't really know what was going on mm. because, you know, in many cultures there weren't any re- records made of it or the, mm. maybe the records are when people have been prosecuted or something like that. So it doesn't mm. give it, it gives a very skewed sort of impression of it. Mm. But one thing I did sort of pick up was is that there have been times throughout history of certain times of increased tolerance. It's not yep. been a kind of a, a, a straight line upwards, has it? It's been there have been more no. tolerant times and less unless in certain cultures have been much more tolerant than others. Oh well look at with the hijab now and the whole problem mm, that's happening right. in Afghanistan. Uh, and Iran, you know, the way that they're taking away female education and persecuting mm. women because they're not wearing a scarf. I mean, how mm. ridiculous is that? So there's been devolution de- de- as well, right? We mm. said to the men, well, you've got to wear shorts all, all your life now. I mean, it just sounds so ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. The whole thing, all the women in the world should be um, supporting the women who are less fortunate than we are in the West as much as they possibly can. In that culture that you're describing, it is gone totally backward, isn't it? Because presumably everything's perverse apart from sex between a man and a covered woman and that's it. Although, although of course, the men are given a lot more licence, right, as well. Yeah, and, and also there's a lot of abuse going on. Well, the other thing which comes over as well uh, at times is issues about power, obviously, which mm. would really uh, Im- impact on mm. gender, but also violence. Now, there's a whole section in the book, and you did talk about Gilles de Ray. Mm. He murdered hundreds of children, tortured mm. them, you know, had sex with them. It was probably one of the worst cases in recorded history. We don't know what else has mm. gone on, right? Mm. The grimly interesting thing for me was is that you suggest the possible connection with the fact that he had been a soldier and had seen huge amounts of carnage on the battlefield mm. and death and injury and blood and guts and a euphoria was attached to that or became attached mm. to that somehow so that, that his particular activities were, you know when he basically kidnapping and torturing and killing mm. children seemed something to do with power and violence mm. you know almost as much as sex i think you're exactly right and and power and and sex seem to go together often resulting in in violence as we know from domestic violence cases and it's 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 about men wanting to um express power against women it's not so much about about sex itself and this doesn't seem to be being easily tattled here again Mm. it's a political thing that the government has the power to actually do much more than they're doing now to prevent prevent domestic violence and to look after women who are victims of domestic violence and they aren't doing so Um, and there's got to be a political will here we often see and hear ministers sort of banging on about it but we don't see it being translated into proper action I mean how many um, places have we got for women to go to they're all under pressure all these safe houses are under pressure they're not pro- properly provided financially and then we've got the move on for women Where did, where's the support mm. we've got small charities trying to help women well there is something forgive the phrase but there is something perverse about that isn't there I mean we don't we use the word perverse and perversion outside mm. the sexual arena when yeah. we look at things in the world we find perverse you know you make the point that where we are now there are again using your inverted commas perversions mm. which have come out of new technologies video porn obviously mm. only fans mm. you know streaming phone sex mm. you mentioned the plushies and furries which is again mm. sort of the comical end of maybe mm. of, of, of this stuff the lovers of life-sized sex dolls but stuff's coming down the pipe isn't it literally ai robotics Mm. where are we going to be with that where it's possible to make a very lifelike 
creature, mechanical creature, which will be subject to our ownership and therefore mm. to do with what we please. I don't know. I've been discussing this with my partner. Cause I've, I've seen online these dolls that they make that are like um, kiddie dolls that are coming out. And I find it quite horrifying that that's something that can be just generated from factories and produced and where that will lead us to because obviously that the if, if people are buying this does it stop them from have wanting sex with real children is it a preventative measure but i think it actually it doesn't stop the the yearning for it is it a gateway drug i don't know i mm. mean i'll be interested to see what what's happening i think the thing for me that's happened in pornography that i think is one of the best things is that there's all this amateur sex you can get now first of all you don't have to pay for it secondly there's all these people really enjoying themselves and wanted to sort of show it off and I suppose in some way we're going back to the old voyeurism stuff and exhibition stuff which that would be classed as as a perversion in the old days you know um, people wanting to show off what they're doing but in actual fact it's, it's I think it's a, a, a big plus uh, and you know then that people aren't being forced into it in some way or parts of the um, the pornographic industry are, are sort of really badly handled um, and some of course parts have, have, have done marvellous things for women and made them very rich that's a bit swings and roundabout but I, I'm, I'm really um, glad about the amateur porn I'm, well you well, know what we always like to end on a positive note your own lost culture <laughs> Julie thanks very much for coming oh thanks very much it's been a pleasure pleasure's all mine <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much to Julie. A terrific guest and great company, as I'm sure you could tell from that. Well, I think all my guests are terrific and great company. But as ever, that was a proper education. I'll put a link to Julie's work and her book, Pleasure's All Mine, in the show notes. It really is great bedtime reading. Fascinating stuff. It's interesting that a lot of the repression and foolishness around the subject of perversions was or is caught up with religion as we discussed. Christianity in this part of the world and other religions elsewhere. But actually, in my research into underground music in the Soviet Union, which was a secular society, in fact, religion was forbidden, I found a not dissimilar level of intolerant prejudice and outright persecution sexual difference. We know it was the same in Nazi Germany and I'm guessing in places like North Korea now it's probably the same. It's not so much religion maybe or spirituality but that fundamentalist totalitarian mindset that always seeks to control our individual experience and expression. Hmm. Well, Julie's got a new book coming soon, by the way, Liberty in London. I'm hoping to do an event with her in April about that and also hoping to get her back in here to talk about it. If you're interested in the events that I mentioned at the beginning, coming up soon, check out the website, bureauoflostculture.com. Um, there's going to be more events there coming soon, and not all in London, all around the place and hopefully online too. Would you do me a favour and... Tell someone else about the Bureau of Lost Culture. We're growing, and it's all been by word of mouth. So thank you. If you feel inspired to share these stories with somebody else, please do. It's great to have you with us. I hope we'll have you with us again next time for more tales from the underground, from the other side, from the upside down. Couldn't really think of a sizzle perversion-related piece of music to finish with, though I'm sure there are many. But let's finish with this one. It's by the Clarkamore Kid. And I will see you and hear you down the road, round the bend, and over the hill next time.